0: We live in a world that is filled with fear. People who have fear in their hearts and fear can well up in someone's heart for a variety of reasons. People fear all kinds of things. People fear heights. People fear closed spaces and, or crowds or spiders or snakes. The list goes on. But one fear that is common for a lot of people is some form of the fear of the future. Or to say it differently, it's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of the the what-ifs about the future. People fear, for example, what's going to happen with the economy. People fear what our government might do or become. People fear uh, the relationships that are on the decline amongst nations and the potential for war People fear potential pandemics, and that list goes on and on. Now, we are studying Paul's letter to the Thessalonian believers for some time now on Sunday morning, and as we've discovered so far, some of them, the believers in the city of Thessalonica, in that newly formed church there, were filled with fear. There was even a sense of panic amongst many, and it had to do with the future. Now, in particular, we've seen that they wrongly believed that believers amongst them who had died already would somehow miss the rapture. The Apostle Paul had taught them about the rapture when the Lord would call his people up to meet him in the air. So they wondered what happens to those who have died, and they also feared. That they would have to experience the tribulation, or what is known as an aspect of the day of the Lord. Paul had taught them some about that as well, and they had some wrong thinking about that. So Paul wrote this letter to correct all that wrong thinking. And in doing so, he was seeking to assure them, first of all, that the believers that had died, that they would not miss the rapture. In fact, God has planned that He will raise the dead in Christ first to meet the Lord in the air, and then the rest will be translated to join the Lord in the air. So Paul clarified that for them, and Paul also has assured them that God's future wrath that will be poured out in the day of the Lord, still in the future, is meant for unbelievers. Now, our next passage is that we've arrived at today is verses 9 through 11 of First Thessalonians chapter 5. And I just happened to wonder this morning as I was getting ready for church, uh, how many sermons is this now in this little book? Well, today is a, it's an anniversary day. It's, it's number 30. So that's a nice round number, number 30 in our study of First Thessalonians. But in these verses, verses 9 to 11, Paul moves on to conclude the section, the material on eschatology, which is the study of the end times and the future. And he brings that conclusion to us by focusing on, in these verses today, the glory of our salvation. It is the right understanding of our salvation That is the answer, the solution, the cure for any kind of fear about the future. In fact, the knowledge of our salvation should prompt even joyful anticipation of the future. So, this discussion of our salvation, I think, will be an encouragement to us today. It is broken down into four elements, which is the way we will study it this morning together. So, here's number one in our outline today the first element of this great topic of our salvation. Number one, the divine initiative in salvation. The divine initiative in salvation. What I mean is the fact that anyone knows the Lord at all, the fact that anyone is saved from their sin at all is due not to something about them, but it's due to, first of all, God's divine initiative. Now, Paul is going to summarize two sides of this initiative. There's a negative side and a positive side that he mentions here. And so, first of all, we're going to look at the negative side of that divine initiative, and it's in verse 9, the first part of verse 9 for God has not destined us for wrath. Now, that term destined, or you may have a translation that says appointed, and that's a good translation of the Greek term. This is a word used regularly for God's sovereign determination of all things, events, and so forth. It can be used in connection with material things, and if we're talking about the destiny of material things, it carries the idea of setting something or placing something, but it's used also in connection with people. And there, it's conveying the idea of appointing someone to a position or appointing someone to a place of service, even destining someone to a particular end goal. Now, in our verse, it is that second idea. It's talking about people So the point is that according to Scripture, all aspects of God's saving of sinners is due to His own sovereign determination. Now, there are many Scriptures in the Bible that highlight this whole idea of divine sovereignty when it comes to salvation. I'll just give you a few this morning to ponder. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 32 This is a broad, sweeping look at the future of history. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. These are the appointed ones, you see. Inherit the kingdom. And here's the key part. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, familiar words to us. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, verse 9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, there it is again, not because of something within us that we do or don't do. It's according to this one thing, his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus when? From all eternity past. So in summary, God is the one who chose his people in eternity past. Then he calls his people to himself at his own appointed times in history He's sovereign over that timing as well. Nothing changes that. And he preserves and protects the ones that he has appointed and destined so that they preserve all the way to the end. He acts according to his own will. He acts according to his own good pleasure. And according to that will, according to that pleasure, God has destined his people to a certain goal. I was meeting with someone this last week and it was, had some questions about our church, what we believe, and believes these things about God's sovereignty, but he wanted to know if we believe that. And I was able to share that I'm so grateful to be in a place where I don't have to skip over things in Scripture that relate to that. We can preach what the Word says about all that and it's received. It doesn't mean that we understand every jot and tittle of God's workings and God's ways, but He's given us what He wants us to know and we believe it. Well, back to our text, that verb destined or appointed in verse 9 is in a particular tense that that emphasizes the same point. It's the picture of God's sovereign initiative, God's sovereign determination before time began. The tense of it is a form that denotes an action that's taken place at a point in time in the past, not something that's repeated in time. Well, from our point of view, then, what's being focused on here is the fact of the the negative side of all that. That is what Paul emphasizes first here. God's sovereign intention includes the fact that there's something that we will not experience, the negative side. He has not destined us, he says, to his wrath. And in the Greek form there, the word not is at the beginning of the sentence there. It would be a little odd to put it there in English, so we smooth it over in our translations, but it's emphasized in the original language. It's not this that he's destined us to wrath. What does he mean by wrath here? Well, there's more than one term that could be used for wrath. This one is a term that is not referring to some sort of outburst of rage, you know, some sort of impulsive, momentary outburst of anger that God has. No, it's a word that refers to a, a settled, mind, a settled and abiding habit of mind. And more specifically, the term is used here to refer to something that is future, something that is specific. This is the wrath that will be poured out during the future tribulation time, that aspect of the day of the Lord that are the years just prior to the second coming to earth by the Lord. Now, this is what we've already been Commenting on in 1 Thessalonians, you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10, and it says there that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. In verse 3 of this chapter, you see that it's referred to as the destruction that will come upon them, and that means unbelievers, suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So Paul's point here is that the church, God's true people in this age, are not appointed for that. They're not destined to the future tribulation or wrath. God has not willed that for us. He has not willed our condemnation. Why? What about wrath for our sin? We're sinners. We have sinned. All divine wrath against our sin, all God's anger for our sin was poured out on Christ when He died on the cross He took all of that in our place, and we experienced the application of it. When we came in saving faith, putting our trust in Christ alone for our salvation, the application of that fact became real in our lives when we began following Him as the Lord of our lives. So, when it comes to the future, we're not looking toward a time where God will display His wrath and divine judgment. We're looking for the Lord, the coming of the Lord Himself, who's going to deliver us someday from even the very presence of sin. But in contrast to that, divine wrath will be the experience of all those who reject Christ. God hasn't appointed us to that. That's the negative side of divine initiative, but there's a positive side that He discusses. And He introduces it with that conjunction, but. I've mentioned before that there's there's a couple of different Greek terms that can be translated, but, and one is more, one is stronger than the other. This is the strong one. It's a great contrast of what he's appointed for us. Verse 9 continues, but for obtaining salvation. And when you read that word obtain, you might think, well, wait a minute. That that sort of makes it sound like that Paul is saying that that we can acquire or earn our salvation in some way by our own efforts. Well, that certainly conflicts with God's unconditional appointment of believers to salvation. It disagrees with all of Scripture. So, we know Paul did not mean that. He's not contradicting the rest of, of Scripture that teaches salvation is by grace alone, without any works on our part. He chose this term obtain not to teach that, that we can earn salvation literally by our own efforts, but to emphasize another very important biblical reality, that even though we have salvation due to divine initiative, due to appointment and the calling of God, that divine calling does necessitate a human response. And so we preach that as well here. Man has a responsibility to believe. People have a responsibility to repent and to put their trust in Christ because that is the way that we receive God's free gift of salvation. So in that sense, Paul says, we obtain our salvation. But still there's a question. What aspect of salvation is he referring to here? And I say that because when you read about salvation in God's Word, you end up concluding that there's three different aspects of of salvation that are discussed. There is salvation in the past that we have experienced. So if you're a believer here today, you can speak about your salvation as if it's in the past. In the past, when we put our trust in Christ at that moment of saving faith, we are saved at that moment from the penalty of sin. That refers to our justification. We are given a standing before God. We are forgiven of our sin when we place our trust in Christ. That's the past moment of our salvation. But you keep reading Scripture, and you find salvation spoken of in a present tense, where we are being changed and and saved as we grow, saved from the power of sin in our lives. That's not our justification. That's our sanctification. And yet, Scripture also talks about someday we will be saved completely from the very presence of sin when we are in eternity in heaven with the Lord. That is our future glorification. Which one is God sovereign over? All aspects of it. But in our passage, it's that third aspect that is referenced here, our glorification, the glorious end for which God has destined us. Salvation in its completeness, you could say. You see, that fits the context, right? Because the Thessalonians were worried about the future, So the point is that for God's future, because of the divine initiative, both sides of it, negative and positive, the future for God's people is secure. It is completely guaranteed. Each of His people will make it all the way to heaven, existing forever in glorified bodies. So because of both sides of this, the negative and the positive, the Thessalonians Is the point here to those original readers? The the Thessalonians had no reason to panic over the future. God has provided for them. And God has provided for us. The same truth remains. And therefore, our future is certain. We can look at the future with a great sense of joy in our hearts, not fear. We can look at the future and ponder the future with a great sense of peace and tranquility in our hearts, not fear it's the joy and the tranquility that God intends for us because of the divine initiative in salvation. But there's a second element here. Number two, the specific means of salvation we see discussed as well in verse 9. He has this prepositional phrase here, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that phrase confirms that salvation in all of its aspects can only be obtained one way through Christ. This is the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the one and only mediator of salvation. It's through Him that our hope of ultimate glorification, ultimate salvation in the future is assuredly assured to us. It will be realized. And in verse 10, Jesus is further identified the phrase really continues. You could read it all together through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Paul was not pausing each time and putting little verse numbers you know, in the manuscripts. Those were added much, much later. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who died for this. Now, Paul talks a lot about the atoning death of Christ in his epistles, but it occurs here for the first time in his writings. For the first time, he states the specific means by which Christ secures our salvation. His function as our Savior from the wrath is linked directly to the fact of his atoning death. He died. Now, the tense of that verb is one that does confirm that Paul is looking back at something, a point in time in the, fa- in the past. And it's, that point in time at Calvary, outside the city gates of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified to pay the debt of the sins of his people. It's put in that tense to point us back to that. Plus, there's a certain voicing of the verb. It's the active voice that's used here. That's pointing to something as well. That's reminding us of the the voluntary nature of what Jesus did. He was willing to die. He was not drag-kicking and screaming to the cross. He was not murdered in the classic sense of the word, even though from a human perspective, certainly it was an unjust death. But ultimately, it was of His own accord. He died for us willingly. And that little phrase carries the idea of dying on behalf of us. He died a death in which we we have a, a special interest Without that work on the cross, His redemptive work on the cross, there would be and could be no salvation of sinners. So what a simple phrase that is, that Jesus died for us, and yet what a profound phrase that is, that He died for us as our substitute. I love reading verses that remind us of that. Verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There's that glorious exchange. Our sin placed on Christ, sin that He did not deserve, dying the death He did not deserve. His perfect righteousness imputed to us, counted as if it's ours, and we don't deserve that. What an exchange that is. Galatians 1.4, He gave Himself for our sins, so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. Ephesians 5 verse 2, Christ gave Himself up for us on behalf of us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What an interesting thought that is. We think of the crucifixion and it's a horrible event. It's a gruesome event. It was something difficult to watch in their day. It was so unjust from a human perspective, but all the time in God's nostrils, so to speak, it was a fragrant aroma because it satisfied the debt of sin for His people. 1 Peter 2, and He Himself bore our sins in His body on the Christ so that we might die to sin and live to Righteousness. Listen, all all those verses and, and everything we're saying here, many more verses are at the heart of what the gospel is, the glorious gospel. It's Christ's substitutionary death that pays in full the penalty for believer's sins. And because of that, we will not face God's wrath, God's judgment in any form. Another verse comes to mind, John 5 verse 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into the judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And perhaps my favorite, I ponder it frequently, Romans 8 verse 1, there's therefore now for us, because of all this, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how weak we still are at times. It doesn't matter what our failures are. If we are in Christ, if we are truly regenerate, if we are a follower of Christ, there is never any condemnation for us. God is never angry at us. His anger was taken out on His Son. Number three... The eternal purpose of salvation, another important element of our salvation that we find here, verse 10 goes on, so that there's a purpose here involved, whether we are awake or asleep, stop there for a moment because we've seen those terms already in this book and Paul has used them different ways. What does he mean here? We have found the term asleep referring to death, it's a symbolic term for death, Later, he used it to refer to spiritual lethargy. The people of the world who are not followers of Christ walk around in the darkness. They walk around in a state of spiritual lethargy, not caring about God and spiritual things. And we're warned against that because believers can slip into that in moments of time. And therefore, we've seen the idea of awake referring to being Physically alive as opposed to being physically dead, or it's been used to refer to being spiritually awake and sensitive. My point is, Paul is using these terms different ways in 1 Thessalonians. If he's using it here to talk about spiritual lethargy or spiritual alertness, then his point would be that even if a Christian is slipped into some spiritual lethargy, and if they're still saved, they still will experience future glorification. That is a true thought. Even the most backslidden Christian, if regenerate, will still go to heaven. But the overall context of what we find here in 1 Thessalonians is pointing once again to the use of asleep and awake to, being, to referring to either being dead or alive here. So he's back to that. So that whether we're dead or still alive, it doesn't matter the end is the same. There is a promise here that when our Lord returns, both the living and dead believers will receive their glorified bodies and the grand purpose of God for us will be realized and that grand purpose is incredible. It is wonderful. It's not just rescue from wrath. The grand purpose is eternal fellowship with Christ. And that's what's confirmed next in verse 10. So put it all together so that whether we're awake or asleep, dead or alive, here's the purpose, the eternal purpose, so that we'll live together with Him. Salvation is not just escape from wrath and rescue from the darkness. There is an eternal purpose involved The highest description of our salvation is this, eternal fellowship with the Lord. This is the very essence of what eternal life is. And this is what we are joyfully waiting for. This is what we joyfully long for. Now, it is true with all this emphasis on the death of Christ to pay for our sins so that this is possible. There's been no mention of the resurrection of Jesus but it is assumed, you see, because everything we're finding here, everything that's affirmed here depends absolutely on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, it's dependent on the fact that after his resurrection, there was the ascension, his enthronement on high. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, everything that we're studying here about our hope for the future and fellowship with him, it would all be groundless. So it is there. It is assumed he did rise he died to pay the penalty of sin he rose from the grave and therefore both groups living and dead believers ultimately will be united with him forever and that's exactly what Jesus promised would be accomplished remember what he said back in John chapter 14 he spoke to his disciples there i go to prepare a place for you and verse 3 says i will come again and receive you to myself, so that from that point on, you'll be with me always. That's the central focus of what heaven is, eternal fellowship with Christ in His presence. Or as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, we will always be with the Lord so we've seen the divine initiative in salvation the specific means of salvation the eternal purpose of salvation the fourth element is this the corporate obligation of salvation the corporate obligation i said that paul is concluding now his discussion about eschatology the eschatological section of the of the epistle and his discussion of the of the day of the lord and so forth and he concludes all that now in this last verse with an exhortation to believers. And this concluding exhortation is introduced by that important conjunction we see a lot, the word therefore, that points us back to what's already been said. This exhortation is grounded in something. It's grounded in the explanation that we've just gone through about the hope that we have when it comes to the future. And the exhortation is this, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another, and build up one another. Let's talk about those two verbs, those two commands. The first one, encourage, is a favorite term of Paul. It occurs more than 50 times in his writings. It can be translated comfort. It has that really uh, focus at times, comfort. It can be translated exhort or exhortation, the noun form. But in our verse, the rendering "encourage" does fit the best. Because think about why Paul was writing the Thessalonians. He was writing to, to cheer them up. He was writing to encourage them to be diligent in their Christian life and quit getting hung up on the future and elements that they had questions about. So Paul wants that for us as well it's an exhortation to us. This is what we need to be mindful to do. And it's a present tense command, and that sets it forth as a continuing duty. It's not like those other tenses that I referred to that's pointing back to an event in the past. It's done. No, this is a continuing duty for believers that we have an obligation. We are to encourage one another, he says. And with that pronoun, we see it to be a mutual activity. Each person in the body of Christ, each person in the church, is to seek to fulfill this command, encouraging others. And the result of that will be mutual benefit then to everyone in the body. But there's another part of our obligation, it's that other verb. We're to seek to build up one another. That's another favorite term build up one another. He loves to use that term in writing about what growth and maturing in the body of Christ looks like. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 20, he says, believers were the ones who have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. By the way, that means that the word of God that we have, they receive revelation, inspired revelation. It's put in the canon we know as scripture, the Bible. And once that was completed, there's been no further revelation at all. God speaks only one way, not through signs and feelings and events and things like that. He speaks through the creation in a broad sense about His glory and His power, but He speaks specifically through the completed canon of Scripture. That's how God speaks. That's the foundation. It was laid by the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus is the very cornerstone of that in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Believers, people, the church, the body of Christ, we are His temple. We are His building. This auditorium is just an auditorium. It's just Rebar, and nails, and screws, and paint, and drywall, and cement, and so forth. There's nothing holy or sanctified about this ground here. But believers, that's different. We are knit together, built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's that construction idea. In fact, this term was a term for construction in their day. Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13 It says there that Christ has given gifted leaders to the church. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up, the construction of this temple called the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, that's talking about Christian maturity so that we mature. So in the New Testament, each person is part of this building. It's in, a, it's in process of construction, and we each have a role in this of encouraging and building up one another. When I think of construction, you know what I think of? Yeah, it's right out there. <laughs> I look out my, out my window every day. I'm not getting a lot of work done, but I'm learning a lot about construction and about uh, footings and about uh, moving of dirt and building of walls, and doing it all in an organized process. Those guys know exactly what they're doing. It's an amazing thing to watch. And I look out there, and I want to drive those pieces of equipment so bad, (laughs) especially the one that's got the, the shovel on the back, the little shovel that digs. So I'm watching to see how they turn it on so that maybe on the weekend I might come out and try it. The point here is that no individual is sufficient, not unto himself, not when it comes to spiritual growth and spiritual development. Each of us here needs assistance. We need help. And we need help from one another. The encouraging and the building up so that we attain full spiritual material. So it's an activity that's mutual. And it's present tense, continually doing this, continually building each other up. Each person here. Each believer in our church has something to bring to the table, something to contribute to the others here, to the building up of the church. You know what this makes clear? That from the very beginning of the church, the life of the church, the care of souls has never been delegated to just one individual in a church or one officer or just a small group of gifted people. It's a work that each believer has to share in. So when you come, when you join a church, it's not not to be with a mindset of just sitting and soaking, you know, passive absorption. No, it's this mindset of active ministry. How can I I function here? And sometimes people ask, what's a ministry I can get involved in? And I know what they mean by that. And sometimes it's hard to answer, and those opportunities come in time. But one thing I I can always say, well, start here. Seeking ways to encourage and build up one another. We should take advantage of even the corporate times when we gather as a church family for that. But beyond that, we should take advantage of even other occasions when there's private conversation to talk about subjects that are going to lead to mutual strengthening. And keep in mind the the context here. A big subject that's important for mutual strengthening is the future. So here's what concerns me today. I think believers do like to get together and talk about the future. let to talk about all their fears and what's going on. is terrible. I don't know how we're going to make it. What's coming? Look at the headlines. Next headline. It's depressing. That's not encouraging. That's not to build up anybody. But point out the things Paul's been pointing out here. In private conversation, corporate gatherings, whatever, mentioning God's plan for the future at some point. They listen we're destined for a wonderful end. We have nothing to fear. I understand that times here can be very hard. There are moments of suffering things that are difficult. But it's all part just of this one short existence we have here on earth. Eternity is forever. And so we can look at the future joyfully anticipating the Lord's return. And while we're joyfully anticipating that, We can carry on active ministry. Keep going. So once again, we see what the purpose of eschatological teaching is. It's not to fuel all the speculation about the dates and the times of the final consummation. All of that about the timing of the end is God's concern, not ours. Now Paul concludes here with a great statement to display his courtesy and his tact and his wisdom here. He acknowledges that they were already committed to that encouragement at some level. Verse 11 says, just as you also are doing. I can say that. Just as we're doing. But he was a faithful pastor. He, he recognized what they were doing, and he gave honor to whom honor is due, but he wanted to stir them up to even further efforts, as we've seen earlier in chapter 1, so that they would excel even more. Excel even more in this. So what's the overall point? Well, the overall point is that thoughts about the future should not bring panic and dread and fear. We should be thinking about being prepared. we studied that already. Being ready, being spiritually prepared whenever the Lord may come. I mean, we do live our lives in, in light of the knowledge of Christ's return, but we live our lives this way each day, just doing what is right, doing what's good, doing what's holy, encouraging and edifying, building up one another, doing what's just. So whatever happens in the world and whatever's going on in the headlines, and let me just say, including what happens in Israel or the Middle East, is not ultimately to be our consuming focus. Of course we read the headlines. So what do we do? We're grieved over the things that happen. We pray for them as we're told to do. But our focus is not to withdraw into fear. Our focus is to, we need to be ready then. Our focus is on exegeting Scripture, not exegeting the times and the headlines to somehow get an accurate reading of the times. No, learn Scripture so we can live in obedience to Scripture, so we can grow in our faith, so we're living and walking by faith, living a life of love for other believers, living in light of the hope that we have in Christ about the future. The future is wonderful for believers. So I want to close with that contrast again between the two groups there's only two groups, believers and unbelievers. And there's more than one way we can contrast them. Our text has already done that in past studies. They walk around in darkness and spiritual lethargy. They don't care about the things of God. Or if they think in spiritual terms, which many do, they define what spirituality means. They define who God is based on their own wants and needs. They don't want Scripture So we can say that unbelievers and believers are that way, the way we live now. But I'm going to conclude with some Bible verses that draw our attention to the future. There is a difference in the future of the two. And this is what makes the most difference. The verses in Scripture that talk about the future of unbelievers, I think, are the most sobering passages of God's Word. And I've got several here. Matthew 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clear His threshing floor. And He will gather His wheat into the barn, and He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, starting verse 40, So shall it be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, including those who ignore God, those who redefine God, and so forth, those who come up with their own truth and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God is abiding. It's like a dark cloud that abides over them. Romans 2, starting in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. What a thought that is. As unbelievers go about their lives rejecting the truth, rejecting God, they are storing up more wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. And Verse 8 says, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, all that's coming is wrath and indignation. Hebrews 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and sinning here means the sin of rejection of the truth and the gospel, there's nothing else that can be done. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 2 Peter 3, 7, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the destiny in the future of unbelievers, the most sobering truth in Scripture. But in contrast, the most blessed truth is what Scripture says about believers. Like the verse we studied today, God is not destined His people to wrath. In verses like these, Romans 5, verse 1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are verses that talk about the peace of God in our hearts. When we give our burdens to the Lord in prayer and we don't have to live with anxiety, we have the peace of God. This is, peace is even more important. It's peace with God. We are born at enmity with God, but in Christ we can have peace with God. Verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, I've already said it, it's my favorite, so we're gonna see it twice. Romans 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Compare, and there's many more we don't have time for, but compare the two lists of verses. The conclusion is obvious. There's a major difference between believers and unbelievers, and there's no middle ground. Believers are saved from their sin. And have the ongoing work of God in their lives. But another thing that sets believers and unbelievers apart is future destiny. Believers will not experience the wrath of God, neither in the day of the Lord, nor in eternity in hell. But those who are unbelievers will. The ultimate future, the bottom line about that, there are only two possible eternal destinies awaiting every single person of the human race, no exceptions. I'm so grateful to know that those who, through faith in Christ, come to the light of salvation, that we will live forever in God's glorious presence. And What will it be like there? Not like it's here. Revelation 21, verse 4, And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's a lot of tears here because there's a lot of suffering here. And there'll be no longer be any death. There's a lot of death here. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. This world is full of that, and people look at that and say, "Why doesn't God do something?" And the answer is, He has, in Christ, to pay for sin so that a person can live forever in something else. This is temporary. In Revelation twenty-two verse five, and there will no longer be any night there. We won't even need the light of a lamp nor light of the sun there because the Lord Himself, the light, the light of this world will illumine that place and that existence and we will reign with Him forever and ever. My hope and trust is that you are on that side because you've come to a place where you can say, I I have humbly come to Christ and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. I want to follow You as the Lord of my life. These verses, these promises then are Yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful discussion and so few verses, a powerful discussion of our salvation, all these different elements of it, summarizing so much theology and Scripture in just a handful of verses. Thank you for the truth that's here. Thank you that you're a God who saves sinners. And thank you that even though this world is full of pain and sorrow, this is temporary by comparison to eternity. And Lord, we need your your strength. We pray for that to face the trials here. We're so weak. We need your strength to endure But, Lord, thank you for the joy we can have in our hearts as we think about the future that's awaiting us. And may we rightly think about all that's going on in the world today and our government, other governments and wars and everything else that's happening. We're grieved over that. We pray for things. But, Lord, help us to realize all of that's in your hands. And our focus is to be on what it means to live a life that pleases you in the now. Strengthen us for that. Open someone's heart today who's never come to that place of trusting in Christ. May you give them the gift of faith today. In our Savior's name, amen.